Well, I'm going to draw your attention first from the glories of the cross to the foolishness of the early days of my marriage. In the early years of our marriage, Adrian and I were poor as church mice, and we would try whenever we could to go out on a date night, and almost without fail, we would end up in a fight on our date night. It took us years to figure out what was going on. Once we did, it seemed actually quite obvious. We had different plans for those date nights. We had different visions for what, for what was going to happen. Uh, I was going into date night thinking, woohoo, celebration, we actually get to go out for a change. Happens so infrequently. Adrian was thinking, not celebration, but moderation. If my husband would just be moderate, we might be able to do this more often. Well, needless to say, we weren't thinking the same. We couldn't do both, at least the way we each defined it. And so conflict almost always ensued. I think our early date nights are a bit of a microcosm on life in general. Every day, our plans bump into other people's plans, right? Our will gets crossed by other people's will. Our, our vision for the day, our vision for the meeting that we're about to run, our vision for the vacation that we're about to go on gets contradicted by somebody else's vision. Much of life is actually learning to, to navigate those, those personal conflicts when my plans bump into your plans. My vision is contradicted by your vision. This is what maturity really is all about, and learning how to navigate these kinds of personal conflicts. But what about when the conflict isn't with another person, but it feels like it's with life itself? Like life itself is contradicting my plans, my vision, the cancer diagnosis, the disabled child, the, the career roadblocks that just keep coming, all of those things and more remind us that we are not actually writing the script of our own lives. And whoever is writing it is not writing it the way we'd like them to. Well, that whoever is God. When God's plans for your life contradict your own plans, how do you respond? This fall, we've been considering the final week of Jesus' life using Luke's gospel. And one of the main things that Luke is trying to convey in these last few chapters of his gospel is that what happened there at the end with Jesus hanging on a cross, what happened was not an accident. It wasn't Jesus like losing control and, and things getting out of hand for him. No, no, to the contrary. What happened was the fulfillment of God's plans. Now, what we also see in these final chapters is that the people around Jesus, they have lots of other plans, conflicting plans. We also see that at the very heart of the story is, is a conflict within Jesus himself. 
as we consider this morning in Luke chapter 22, these various conflicts, I want you to consider your own life. I want you to consider your own response to God's plans for your life. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Uh, This is found on page 935. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, those black Bibles, uh, 935, Luke chapter 22. We're going to deal with the entire chapter this morning, but I want to start just by setting the context and reading the first two verses. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. All right, let me, that, that's the setting. That's where we're going to start. Let me, let me back up a little bit and explain that in many ways, today's sermon is part one of a two-part sermon because chapter 22 is part one of a two-part unit, chapters 22 and chapter 23. It's a single unit. It begins with preparation for Passover, as we just saw. It's going to end at the very end of chapter 23 with preparations for the burial of Jesus. And just over 24 hours will have passed in those two chapters. It divides, though, into these two panels, these two parts. The first part, chapter 22, is dominated by its Jewish setting. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 23, part two is dominated by its Gentile, Roman setting. By the end of our chapter today, though, chapter 22, what we're going to see is that everyone has followed their own plans. And they have all rejected Jesus. But what we're also going to see is that Jesus has accepted God's plan for him. A a plan to be the rejected Messiah. That's actually uh, the main point for us. We'll put it on the screen. Jesus accepted God's plan, even though it meant his rejection. And so should we. And so should we. We're going to consider, as we look at chapter 22, uh, three different scenes, three different sections. We're going to consider a conflict of plans. We're going to consider a conflict of vision. And third, we're going to consider a conflict of will. As we move through the chapter, consider what it means for you to accept rather than reject God's plans for you in Jesus Christ. Well, let's start with a conflict of plans. A conflict of plans. I'll pick it up where I left off. Verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to, the, to them when the crowd was not present. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them. When you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house. The teacher asks you. Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. 
So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the son of man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves, which of them it could be who was going to do it. We'll stop there. The story of Jesus' death begins with the approach of Passover. And, and right away, we're, we're confronted with this conflict of plans. On the one hand, the leaders have their plans, right? They want to kill Jesus, but they can't figure out how to do it because he's always with the crowds. And he knows the crowds will like turn on them if they just take him in front of everybody. So at that point, enter Judas, right? Verse three, inspired by Satan. Judas goes to the leaders. The plan is hatched. Money is promised. And preparations for the betrayal of Jesus begin. In the meantime, though, really kind of at the exact same time, Jesus has plans of his own. He sends Peter and John to make preparations for the Passover. And it's a strange story. I get it. I don't know. And you, you might be wondering, is it that Jesus had kind of already set it up in advance and he knew that this guy would be coming at a certain time. And, or, or is it that actually, just because he's divine, uh, he just knew this was going to happen? I don't know. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't write it in such a way that we can be certain if this was set up in advance or Jesus is using divine foreknowledge. Either way, though, the point is made. Jesus is in control. He's got a plan. He's working it out. Now, it's at the Passover meal itself that the two different plans collide. Judas is planning to betray Jesus that very night. But all along, Jesus has been planning to offer himself as a sacrifice. And, and, and he explains that by using the Passover meal itself. This will be his last Passover, he says, until it is fulfilled on the last day in the kingdom of God. And so he takes two different elements of that meal. There are a lot of different elements to the Passover meal. He takes just two of them. He takes these two and he redefines them. The bread broken now represents his body given for them. The cup poured out represents his blood poured out for them. He calls it the new covenant. And of course, that makes sense because they are celebrating the old covenant meal, the Passover meal. Just as, and, and this is what Jesus is, is, seems to be saying, the, the disciples don't understand it. Just as the Passover lamb was sacrificed 
in the Old Testament in order to save God's Old Testament people from the judgment of death. Right. You remember the story in the Exodus, uh, the, the the angel of death is going to go over across the entire land of Egypt, killing the firstborn in every home. And yet God gives his people, the Israelites, the Passover lamb. And because that lamb is sacrificed, the firstborn in that particular home, that Jewish home, will be saved from the judgment of death. Well, in the exact same way, Jesus is saying, he is now the sacrificial lamb who is giving his body, who is pouring out his blood to save God's people from the judgment that they deserve, not just the death of the firstborn, but the death of all of them. Judgment because of their sin. Because his sacrifice is a perfect sacrifice. It's not going to be repeated. Instead, there will be a meal that is repeated, but it's a meal that doesn't have a sacrifice inside of it. See, every Passover, you sacrifice the lamb all over again. But now the Lord is giving his disciples a new covenant meal in which there is no sacrifice. Instead, there is a remembering of the perfect sacrifice. The new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, is a bloodless meal. Because blood no longer needs to be shed. It only needs to be remembered and trusted in. Friends, this is the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. And it is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is explaining it to us right here in advance before it happens. He wasn't dying as an example. He wasn't dying as a demonstration No, he died as a substitute for all who would put their faith in him. He describes his death in the terms of of the Passover meal as a penal sacrifice. Penal in that he he suffered God's judgment in death. It it, it wasn't just an example. It It was actually a judicial execution sacrifice in that he offered his life not for himself but on behalf of others in order to turn aside God's wrath for our sin and what's so amazing and you see it here in in verse 15 he he did it voluntarily freely even even ardently he says I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. If you're not a Christian, I don't know what you think Christianity is. I don't know what you think it might be all about. I I, I want to suggest to you that this is what it's all about. Christianity is all about trusting that Christ died for you. Even though you deserve to die, even though you deserve to be that lamb that's slaughtered. No, Christ came to die for you. What that means is that becoming a Christian is all about abandoning your plan for your life and trusting that his plan for your life 
is a better plan because it begins right here with him dying in your place on your behalf so that you don't have to shed your blood. Rather, you can remember and trust his shed blood for you. Now, I'm going to talk about this more later in the sermon, but just know this is what we're asking you to understand. This is what we're asking you to believe. And I'd love to talk to you more about it afterwards. You can find me. I'll probably be up up front or maybe just talk with the person that, that you came with, the person that invited you. Now, I understand that this raises a question. Is Jesus' death the result of his betrayal by a, by a close friend into the hand of his enemies, one of his own disciples? Is Jesus' death the, the inspired plan of Satan himself? Or is it Jesus' plan to sacrifice himself for the salvation of God's people? Like, like which is it? Whose plan is operating here? Well, the answer is yes, like all of the above. You see it there in verse 22. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. What's about to happen is the set and determined plan of God, planned before the foundation of the world. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It is also Judas' plan. It is a wicked plan. And in that woe, we understand that he will be held accountable for his wicked plan. And that lands us right in the middle of the problem of evil in this world. Now, I get it. This is, this is a hard problem. It is a vexing problem. How can God be sovereign and good and there still be evil and brokenness in this world? How can this be God's plan and Judah's plan at the same time? Because it seems like evil would call into question either God's goodness, because he's actually sovereign over evil things that are happening, or it it calls into question his his authority, his sovereignty, his power, because apparently he's, he's like unable to do anything about it. He's unable to stop it. That's as true for Judas' plan as it is for other things that we know about in this world. The Holocaust, the killing fields of Cambodia, the genocide in Rwanda, or or the one that appears to be going on right now in Xinjiang. But it's also just as true, just as difficult to deal with in that cancer diagnosis, in that abuse that you experienced as a child, in the injustice that you have experienced personally because you're a woman or a minority. And you run into these things and you find yourself asking, why? How? How can what I'm experiencing, how can what they experience, how can that be consistent 
with a good and sovereign God. Friends, the Bible is deeply, profoundly uninterested in explaining the problem of evil. It just doesn't do it. It does something else, though. Something that I think is even better. It is very concerned to show us what God has decided to do about the problem of evil. Jesus is God's answer to the problem of evil. Jesus is not his explanation of the problem of evil. He is God's solution to the problem of evil. If we can know for certain that in the most wicked thing that ever happened, the, the, ex- the betrayal and unjust execution of the only sinless person to ever walk this earth, if we can know for certain that though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good, if we can know that about the cross, and we can, then we can know that about our own lives. We can know that about our own suffering. Brothers and sisters, God may never answer all of your questions about the evil that you've experienced, the the suffering that you've endured. But he has given you his solution. His name is Jesus, the righteous sufferer for you. Is he enough? Is he enough for you in the evil that you have experienced, the suffering that you have known. Friend, if he is not, I assure you that nothing else will satisfy. There's not just a conflict of plans in these events. There is, second, a conflict of vision. And that vision, that conflict is among the people sitting around the table with Jesus that last night. Let's pick up Luke's narrative in verse 24. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads, like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said. 
the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. He also said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. All right, the narrative of chapter 22 is interrupted at this point by an extended sort of after-dinner conversation that begins with the, with the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. Now, we know that this was a recurring conversation among them. This was not the first time they had had this conversation. You can read about it earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 9, or over in Matthew chapter 20, and there's some other examples as well. It's not hard to imagine how at this particular point, strange as it is, the the conversation is moved from who would betray Jesus to who is the greatest among them. You can just imagine them saying, well, well, it's not me. I'm, I'm not the one that's I'm not the one that's going to betray Jesus. I'm I'm the best of all of you. I'm the greatest of all of you. And all of a sudden they're in a big argument. This is a bit of a theme through this whole section. You see the same self-centered vision in Peter's rather bold overestimation of his own faithfulness in verse 33. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You even see it kind of tragicomically in the disciples' assertion that that they're ready for whatever comes. See, Lord, we've, we've got two swords. Look, here are two. Yeah. In contrast with their very self centered, very worldly vision of greatness, collectively and individually, Jesus puts forward a very different vision for what it's going to mean to participate with him in the kingdom that is ushered in by the new covenant in his blood. He points to himself. You you see that there in, in verse 27. He asked them, who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you, as the one who serves. Not, not only is this a reference to the fact that at that moment he has taken off his robe, he has girded himself in a towel, and he has just washed all of their feet, as John records in John 13. But, but he's also then using that as, as an allusion to the death that he's about to die for them. You can't serve someone more than that. He assures them that, yes, you're going to have a place in my kingdom. Yes, you're going to sit with me at my table. Yes, you're going to eat and drink with me. Yes, there are going to be thrones from which you will also rule. Verse 30. But the path to that table, the path to those thrones, the path to greatness in the kingdom of God is the road of humble service. 
just as he was serving them. They aren't to be like the, the great people of the world, the, 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 the kings of the Gentiles, the, 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 the rich and the powerful that we've been reading about all week, hiding their wealth. We've been reading about it in the Pandora papers. No, that's not what they're to be like. They're to be like their savior. And that is going to be the path to greatness. Jesus immediately takes this principle and he applies the lesson specifically to Peter. He he says to, to Simon, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. That you is plural. He's asked to sift all of you, all of the disciples like wheat. The image is of separating wheat from chaff. It's, it's literally Satan wants to pick you guys apart. Rather than reject them for the failure that he knows that's going to come. Jesus says that I've prayed for you. And now, Simon, you in particular, but you, Simon, when when you have turned back. When you have turned back from your failure, when you have turned back from abandoning me, like all the other disciples are also going to do, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen them even though you yourself were a failure. Now, Peter responds with, with bravado and pride, which Jesus rejects out of hand. No, no. No, no, Peter. You're going to betray me just like Judas. The difference between you and Judas is that I've prayed for you. I've prayed that you will repent, that you will turn back. And in the humility that comes from your failure, in your newfound dependence on me because you understand how weak you are, Serve your brothers. Strengthen them. Because they're going to be hurting just like you. Jesus then turns to all of them and explains the new context of their kingdom service. He, he refers back to when he had sent them out on their, on their missionary journeys. And, and he asks them, look, look, when I sent you out before, I, I sent you with nothing. And did you lack anything? And they're like, no, we didn't lack anything. And, and of course, if you go back and you read the, the account, they lacked nothing because wherever they went, they were welcomed. They were provided for. The world had not yet rejected the one who sent them. But now, Jesus says, now... They need to be prepared, prepared for a hostile world and a cold reception. He, he describes what following him is going to look like now. And, and it's, he uses the imagery of, of the provisions that you would need for a long journey through a hostile land. You're going to need money. You're going to need a traveling bag because you're going to need several changes of clothing. And actually, this is hostile. You're going to need a sword. They, they misunderstand. They point to the swords that they have. They don't understand that he's actually speaking metaphorically. Jesus' point is in the passage that he quotes from Isaiah 53. If he was rejected as a lawbreaker, then they would be too. And they needed to be prepared. Christian, what is your vision for your life? 
What, what, what is your vision for a mature and growing Christian life? Does it line up with the vision that Jesus lays out here? Jesus calls us to follow him in a, in a life of service, a life of humility, a life of suffering in a world that is hostile to him and his claims. Now, his promise is that we will sit at his table. We will be with him in the kingdom of God. But the path to that table, as I said, is through a life that is given to serving your brothers and sisters. I think sometimes we get confused and we think that, oh, the, the goal of the Christian life is, is for me to know more theology, to be more correct in my views. The, the goal of the Christian life is to have longer, quiet times, to read more Christian books this year than I did last year. All of that's great. That's really good. You should do those things. But if you're doing those things and you don't have time, you don't have a willingness to serve your brothers and sisters in this congregation. I don't know what path you're on, but it's not the path that Jesus lays out. We don't get the luxury of saying, I'll serve when I've got it all together. Or I can't serve because nobody's done this for me. No, no, what does Jesus say to Peter? At the moment, uh, at the moment of your deepest failure, when you most clearly don't have it all together, I've prayed that you will turn back and in the weakness of that moment, even the humiliation of that moment, that you will transparently serve your brothers and strengthen them. And all of this, by the way, in a context where you're getting very little encouragement, in a hostile world that is all too eager to mischaracterize and misrepresent who you are and what you're about. You know, it's one thing to be known as a servant, to enjoy the reputation of a servant. It's another thing altogether to be treated like one. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. To a life of being treated like a servant. So when your personal vision of glory, when your personal vision of the Christian life comes into conflict with Christ's vision, which vision wins out? Which vision will win out later today? Which vision will, will win out this week? Christian, I, I want you to be encouraged, even though this is challenging. Jesus isn't calling us to something that he hasn't already done himself for us. He, he was this servant he was the one who, who served us best in his moment of greatest weakness. He is the one who served us in the face of extraordinary hostility and rejection. He is calling us to be with him in this. He will be with you in this. He will give you the strength that you need. But he's not going to call you to a different path. Because this is the path that he is on. When Jesus intercedes for us, 
like he did for Peter. He's not just praying for our forgiveness. He's praying for our sanctification. He's praying that our lives would increasingly be cross-shaped just like his life. Suffering, then glory, was Jesus' path. And if we're to follow him, it will be our path as well. So we've considered a conflict of plans and a conflict of vision. The most important conflict, however, in this chapter, this last night of Jesus' life, was the third conflict we're going to look at, a conflict of will. Let's pick it up in verse 39. He went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. They seized him, led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him, too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them, too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept, kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, 
the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. Well, with the dinner conversation ending on a note of misunderstanding, the narrative resumes. They, they make their way back to the Mount of Olives, their usual place where they've been staying outside the city each night. The, uh, Luke simply notes that they reached the place. The other gospel writers tell us it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus tells the disciples to, to pray so that they wouldn't fall into temptation. And given his words to Peter, we, we know what that temptation is. It is a temptation to deny. It's a temptation to, to fall away from Christ in this hour of great fear and stress. And then Jesus withdraws a bit further and begins to pray himself. If you're willing, verse 42, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Friends, here's the crucial conflict of the whole chapter, the crucial conflict of will, a conflict of desires that must be settled if the Lord's plans and the Lord's vision are to be fulfilled. Sometimes I think people think, well, this is just a a show prayer, a perfunctory prayer. I mean, he's God, isn't he? But this is no perfunctory prayer. Jesus is, is wrestling with the reality of what he's about to face. An angel from heaven is sent to to strengthen him. Sweat pours off him like, like blood in agony as he fervently prays, fervently seeking to bring his will, his very human will, his desire, his very human desires. You know your own desire. You, you know your desire to keep living. Jesus was a man just like us. He knew those same desires. And here he is fervently trying to bring that desire into line with the Father's desire. If there was ever a moment that we could see most clearly the humanity of Jesus, this is it. What is it that he's struggling to accept? What what is it that requires an angel from heaven and, and such agonizing prayer for him to be able to bring his will into line with. Well, we see the answer unfold in quick succession in the remainder of the chapter. He is betrayed by one disciple, denied by another, mocked and beaten unjustly, finally convicted and condemned by the leaders of his own people in what amounts to a show trial. By the end of chapter 22, Jesus stands alone abandoned by all human comfort, abused by the full force of human authority. They ask him if he's the Messiah, but, but he, he knows their minds are already made up. If I, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. If, if I ask you, you're not going to answer me. The will of God that Jesus accepted that night was not simply to be the Messiah who would rescue God's people, but to be the rejected Messiah, 
the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. For the rejection of his disciples and the rejection of the nation was but a foretaste of the more profound rejection that lay ahead. That night, as Isaiah predicted, all went astray like sheep. All turned to their own way. Isaiah 53, verse 6, the verse right before we heard, read this morning, earlier this morning. I mean, you, you see it there. Judas went ahead with his plan along with the mob. Though, as Jesus pointed out, they were cowardly hypocrites. Peter, whatever his plans were, decided in the moment that the best plan was to act to save his own skin. And so in fear for his own life, despite his earlier boasts, he denies the Lord. Oh, boasts that, that would ring bitterly hollow as that rooster crowed. The, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of God's people, well, they were, they were only too eager to wrap the trial up. You're supposed to have multiple testimonies to be able to convict somebody, but they never could get, as the other gospel writers show us, they never could get any of the other testimonies to agree. So they just decided to convict him on his own words. God's response, though, to all of these sheep going their own way, God's response had already been foretold in Isaiah 53. All went astray like sheep, all turned to their own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Here's the will of God. Here is the will of God that Jesus had to come to terms with. Not our blows, but the blows of divine justice. Not our denial, but heaven's denial. Not our rejection, but the father's rejection of his own son. What allowed Jesus to accept the father's rejection? I think you get part of the answer in verse 48. Are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? That question filled with dismay is nevertheless the dismay of love. You get part of the answer in verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. That look, though disappointed, was the disappointment of love. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus faced the Father's rejection out of love for sinners like Judas, sinners like Peter, sinners like you and me. But that is just part of the answer. You get the whole of the answer in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus Christ accepted the Father's rejection 
because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that in doing so, he had the father's love forever. Here's how John records the same thing, the same idea in his gospel. In John 10, Jesus says, this is why the father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have this command from my father. This is what enabled Jesus to accept the father's rejection. Jesus could accept that rejection because he knew that in accepting it, he would without fail without doubt, be accepted back into heaven by that same father. He was obedient to the father's plans, even unto death. Because he loved the father. And the father loved him. So here's the question that we all have to ask. When you look at a passage like this. Where do you find yourself? Where do you see yourself in Luke 22? Are you the cowardly hypocrite? Are you the fearful denier? Are you, like those soldiers, guilty of abusing your own authority and power over others? Are you like the Sanhedrin? Guilty of making up your mind in advance just to serve yourself. Are you a mocker? Are you the scoffer? Where do you see yourself in these lines? Friends, you have a choice today. You can keep going with your own plans, for your own life, pursuing your own vision. But those plans are going to collide with God's plans. And his plans will win. His plans will triumph. His plans will prevail. Or you can accept God's plan for your life. That plan begins with finding yourself on this page, seeing yourself in these lines, and then repenting of your plans and accepting that God loved you best when he died for you on the cross. And then, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, go on accepting God's plan for your life. Because it doesn't end with accepting that that Christ died for you. No, that, that plan goes on. It is a plan that looks like being conformed to the life of a rejected Messiah. Because it is that plan And that plan alone that leads to being accepted at Christ's table in the kingdom of God.
to eat and drink with him when the kingdom finally comes. What plan are you following? I assure you, there is not a better plan than the one I just laid out for you. Accept God's plan and you will find that there is none better. Let's pray. Take just a moment. Think about that plan that you have for your life, that that vision that you have for your life. And where it differs from the Lord's plan, just confess that to him. Lord, we do confess that we are full of plans. We're full of plans for our own glory. We're full of plans for our own success. We have a vision for our own lives, and we want you to bless it. And yet the reality is we are like all of those in Luke 22 who went astray following their own plans, plans that lead to disaster. Lord, we ask that you give us the grace to trust you, to trust that your plans are better than ours, that that your vision for our lives is, is better than our own And we pray that you would bring our will into a line with yours. That we might only trust you, but follow you. And show the world what better plans you have. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.